So if you have a Bible, if you're getting a Bible, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be finishing off our series in uh, Hebrews 10. So our series, Disconnected, the first week we talked about we can become disconnected from the Lord through digital distractions. Then we discussed how impurity disconnects us from the Lord. And today we're going to talk about how isolation disconnects us from Jesus because he has given us his body, the body of Christ, to be a part of. And when we disconnect ourselves from the body of Christ, we're actually disconnecting ourselves from Christ himself, in a, in a sense at least. Isolation separates us from this community that God's given us, and we lose out on so much sanctification and transformation that God has designed to take place within the body of Christ. That's where real growth happens within a community of believers. And we, we know this to be true in different scenarios in, in life. This is true in the animal kingdom, right? We know that uh, animals need to grow up together if they're going to learn all the skills. That's why it's always such a, you know, a bummer when people read about animals being separated. Do you ever, ever have any friends that, like, you know, when you pick up a bird, you see a bird, you pick it up, they're like, don't touch it! The mom's going to know that a human touched it and the baby's going to live alone and they're going to die. And they start freaking out. And you're like, I just wanted to pet a bird. Just wanted to pet a bird. They're like, we'll go to the zoo. This just happened a few days ago in Arizona. Some guy was, it was all in connection to a bar. So I'm assuming he was drinking too much. He went outside and saw a baby, a three-day-old baby deer. And he picks it up thinking the mother had abandoned it. The mother was actually looking for some food. And so he picks up this baby you know, deer and brings it back into the bar. Who wants to take home a deer? And everyone's like, why did you touch the deer? And they call people. And this deer, this three-day-old deer, all excited about meeting mama and everything, is now spending the rest of its life in isolation, in captivity, on, on a reserve somewhere, rather than when it, where it belonged, which is with its mother. So now every day it gets picked up by a human and fed like a little bottle, rather than where it was supposed to be, with its parents, with the rest of the, the deer there. And so it's going to miss out on a lot of those things. And they say it will never be able to go back to the wild because of what it misses out on learning from the real place it was supposed to learn. We think, oh, that's really tragic, but that's a really good illustration for us on how tragic it is when the enemy of our souls convinces believers to leave the body of Christ. And this happens, and maybe we've even heard these uh, deceitful thoughts from the enemy when we feel like leaving church, when we feel like leaving you know, intense accountability and community, and the enemy whispers to us, oh, they don't really love you. you know, they don't really want you. They don't really see your value and, and we begin to separate ourselves, and so many end up stopping going to church or pulling out of a, a small group or a home group where there was some accountability because they feel like, you know what, I can do this on my own. But the same is true for us. We end up missing out on so many of the things that we needed to learn within the body of Christ. And, and this passage today, God's going to challenge us to become more effective for his kingdom by laying aside either our idol of independence, we think far too highly of independence in our culture, or our fear of dependence. Oh, what would happen if I really am dependent on someone and then they let me down? And we've either got an idol of independence or a fear of dependence. And, and God wants us to lay those things down and embrace his calling to, of mutual encouragement for our growth. So Hebrews chapter 10, let's read the verses we're covering verses 24 through 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see 
the day approaching. And so we're going to talk about six biblical characteristics of community this morning with a goal of staying connected to Christ by staying connected to his body. And the first we see in just those first two words, let us, we see that community is commanded. So if you're taking notes, six characteristics of community, community is commanded is the first. There's no loopholes for this. There's no excuses. There's no exceptions. Why? Because it really does take a community to fully mold somebody. It takes a community to do that. God has made everyone an important part of the body of Christ. Every person. We, we get so confused in thinking, oh, it's the pastoral staff, the elders, the deacons, and we, we start to professionalize ministry when ministry should be one to one another. Ministry should be every person being involved. And the truth is, is that we all need what other people have. And we don't like saying that. We like, we like the independence. We like thinking that we can handle things on our own, but we do need one another. And so what happens when one person checks out and says, ah, I'm not going to be a part of the church. I'm not going to be a part of, of this accountability is it actually harms the body because what God intended for that person to bring to the body now isn't there. And God mercifully um, compensates for that. But we don't think like that. We don't, we don't realize that when Achan sinned, the whole body suffered, that, that we are part of this group, the body of Christ. Scripture doesn't value independence and privacy as much as America does. It's, it's not what we see in scriptures. You can't really back that up in the Bible. It does speak against separation, though. It speaks against division. It's one of the main tactics of our enemy is to separate ourselves. There really are no solo Christians. There's no independence. The, you know, the, the idea that and sometimes throughout church history, we've seen you know, people separate themselves into monasteries and, and, and not speak to each other for the purpose of studying. And studying is great, but you'll never be fully balanced in how the Lord wants to mold you unless you're a part of a community. And so this is commanded for all of us. It's, this passage starts out by saying, let us, let us, this is commanded. Second, we see that community is considerate. Community is considerate. It says, let us consider one another. We're to consider one another. We're to be concerned about one another. We're to pay attention to one another, to, to think about one another. Other passages say we're to bestow thought on one another as if it's a gift. Isn't it true so often we just get caught up in our own minds and just think about us and what people are thinking about us rather than pausing and saying, how are they doing? How can I better understand other people in the body of Christ? I like how Barnes says it. He says, let us so regard the welfare of others as to endeavor to excite them to persevere in the Christian life. The idea is that much might be done in securing perseverance and faithfulness by mutual kind exhortation. So much more can happen in the body of Christ if we would just be considerate and think of others. Now, considering causes you to think differently about the thing that you're considering. That's that's one of the things. Think about anytime you consider something, you end up thinking differently about it. This same word consider turns up in Matthew 7, 3, where it says, you know, consider that beam in your eye. Consider that plank in your eye. And so there's this judgmentalism that's going on, thinking about someone else, and we're told to first consider our own lives, and then that's going to affect how we think about other people. Jesus says to consider the, the ravens, to consider the lilies in the field. And as we pause and we consider how God takes care of even nature, we can then think about ourselves and say, okay, God's going to take care of me. And so we are to consider one another. The end result is going to be we will think differently about one another. 
almost every time that you prejudge someone and you've got a problem with someone, if you were just to put yourself in their shoes to consider that person and what they're going through, how they've been raised, you'll think differently about them. I remember there was this guy that I thought of, and this guy's just mean. He's just angry, and I don't know why he's in ministry, and it just really bothered me how he was always hurting other people, but I hadn't stopped to consider what he had gone through, and when I heard his testimony and how his mother tried to kill him, and that was the foundation of his life, how his mother actually tried to kill him and ended up in jail, and, that, and then I realized he's come a long way, He's come a long way and he trusts in Jesus and he's putting himself out there. And yeah, just like me, he's got further to go along the distance. But when I did that, all of a sudden everything changed in how I related to that person because of considering what they've gone through. And so this, this one another idea, this mutual you know, considering of each other is what we're seeing in this passage. So how do we do this? Well, we can pause and recognize, you know what, that, that other person's just a sinner like me and they need mercy just like I need mercy. We can recognize that they're a saint just like we are and that everything that God has for us, God has for them, that they suffer just like we do, that they're church members just like we are. There's so much to think about other people, but it involves a lot of hard work. And so why should we even do this? It doesn't come naturally. We've got to stir ourselves up to consider one another. Maybe if we just answer that question, who considered me, we would be stirred up to consider other people. I know my parents considered me. I consider my children all the time. I know there's, there's pastors and elders that considered me, grandparents that considered me, friends that considered me. We know that God the Father considered us, that while we were yet sinners, he sent his son Christ to die for us. We know that Jesus considered us as he was on his way to cross. It said that he did it for the joy set before him. That's why he endured it. He was thinking of us and what he could do for us and how much we needed it. This idea of considering one another, Paul elaborates in Philippians 2, where he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. I tease the Bible college students every year and, and, and say, wow, you got here early. You're the first in line. That means you get to bless all of your roommates by choosing a top bunk instead of a bottom bunk, because I know they got there early specifically to choose a bottom bunk, and they give me a really awkward look, and they've got all the excuses in the world for doing the opposite of what Jesus would do, and choosing the bottom bunk, and not considering others, except for the few that have a health reason for doing it, right? And so, we're to consider others. Jesus did it. This passage goes on to say, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. When I realize how much Jesus considered me in his mission to save me, it causes me to consider others. And so community is commanded, community is considerate, and third, community is effective. Hebrews 10.24 goes on to say that we are to do this in order to stir up love and good works. In order to stir up love and good works, that's going to be the result if we pause and kind of get out of our own minds and think of others, there's going to be a result of love and good works. To stir up, to spur on, to motivate, to provoke, to, to kind of arouse this, this idea of, of godliness in other people we need to do that because we don't like change. 
And so if it were up to us, we would continue doing the same thing on and on and on. And sometimes we need the other people to call us out and to say there needs to be change. Change is hard and we're blind to it very often. So we need to be thoughtful about how we can bring godly change within the body of Christ, knowing that if somebody just came right at us and said, you need to change, you need to repent, that we probably wouldn't receive that very well. But instead, we need to speak the truth in love. We need to get creative about how we are encouraging each other to live for the Lord. The change that we're looking for in this passage is love and good works. That's something that all of us should desire, even if it hurts, even if it comes in a way where sometimes it comes in the form of confrontation. We want to stir each other up because we're all lacking in these areas. None of us have arrived with love and good works. Love needs stirring because sometimes it grows cold. I mean, if, if love for Jesus can grow cold, you better believe love for one another can grow cold, right? The church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, their love for Jesus even grew cold. Our love for one another can do that. Love shows us that, that we are true disciples, Jesus told us in the book of John, right? That's how people are going to know that you really are changed, that you really are a part of the body is, is love for one another. Love is the main commandment that Jesus left with us right? You're to love others just like I have loved you. And so I'm going to pause and just think, how can we love our neighbors this week? How can we love the people sitting next to us this week, right? How can we motivate them to love others? So it's, it's we need to love, but then we also need to stir up others to love as well. So this idea of, of good works, it's what we want to do because there's so much junk in this world, there's so much filth in this world. There's good work to do, and it can be done better together. Paul tells us we were created for good works. We were created to do good works. These were prepared beforehand for us, and so if we're not actively involved in good works, then we are outside of the will of God for us because if he's created good works for us to do, probably not just a few times in life, but each day and each week, we need to specifically walk in them. And so it's not, ah, oh, my friends and my family, they are so needy. They are so needy this time. It should be this thought of, God really must desire me to serve him a lot this season of my life because look at the opportunities. Do you see the change in perspective there where it's like, ah, oh, my friends are so needy. Ah, oh, why can't these people just grow up? Why can't they just get over it? Why can't they just stop sinning? Is That's the selfish way of looking at it. Instead, we should say, wow, God really must think highly of me. God really must be giving me grace because look at the season I'm in. There's a lot of people that need help. There's a lot of people. And so praise God if, if he's got you in a place where you can pour out to other people. Now, this is a church that's well taught. And so we know when we're talking about good works, it's not for justification that we do this at all. In fact, Luther says, God doesn't need your works, but your neighbor does. It's an important distinction. God doesn't need your works, but your neighbor does need them. Why? Well, to, so that mockers' mouths can be stopped, so that God can be glorified, so that the gospel can be shown to be true and beautiful because of our sacrificial love. Out of the gratitude that we have for God and because of what it's going to do to help our fellow Christians and unbelievers, we serve him. And so what I'm really asking you to do, if you're looking for a simple way to remember it, is just be a dork. Because, because Acts, I think it's 9.36, says that Dorcas was full of love and good works, all right? So that really should have been the title for the message, Be a Dork, Dorcas was full of love and good works. Acts 9.36 is the simplest way to remember what we're to do. Paul, Paul wants us to emphasize this when he tells Titus in his ministry. He says, I want you to emphasize these things 
so that those who believed God will take care to devote themselves to good deeds. These things are excellent and profitable for the people. If you love God, we're going to devote ourselves to good works because it's an excellent thing to do and it really does help people. And it's so much more satisfying. I was just thinking this morning about this, this TV show that I thought was, was like a sci-fi show that I watched a few years ago and I was like, that was a really good show. And then I paused and thought, what benefit to my life happened from really like consistently weekly watching that show and would my life be any different? That's not the thing. If it was removed from my life, that would really make a difference. There's, there would have been no loss of joy or anything. But you think of some of the relationships that are most difficult in your life, but God gave you the grace to, to pour into those and to disciple others and to be discipled. Now, if that was removed from my life, there would have been a big difference in my life right now. So community is effective. This is a good plan of God's. It's a good plan of God's to give us a body to encourage one another. And fourth, we see that community is committed. It's committed. Hebrews 10.24 goes on to say, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. And so in verse, verse 25 there, we see that we're not to give up on this community, but some do, but we're not to. To consider one another, you need to assemble together, right? We, I, I'll consider them from afar off, right? No, we need to assemble together. Gathering is core to our faith you know, and, and, and unity gives us strength and it helps foster love. And this is something we need to be committed to. Ignatius many years ago said this, when ye frequently and in numbers meet together, the powers of Satan are overthrown and his mischief is neutralized by your like-mindedness in the faith. What a good reason to gather together, to not give up on each other. Because one of Satan's main strategies is to divide us, to cause gossip, to you know, slander, to separate us. Those are the main tools of the accuser. And yet when we gather together and we're actually rubbing shoulders with each other and seeing each other worship, we realize they can't be that bad. <laughs> they can't be as bad as I think they are. That must be a thought from the enemy. And his mischief is neutralized. I love how he says that. We're, we're just not going to arrive. We're not going to become the believers, the mature believers that we are to become unless we do it together. Religion is a very social thing and our graces are to be strengthened as we wait on the Lord together. And no Christian can hope that, that the grace that God wants to give, give them is going to grow in such a way by themselves. We need to be united with other believers and with those that love the Lord. We need to put ourselves in situations where iron sharpens iron, which doesn't sound very fun at all. It's, you know, it's not cotton sharpening cotton, right? It's iron sharpening iron. You're like, well, that sounds very painful, you know, for that piece of iron, but it becomes sharper. The, the greatest change in our life is going to happen through conflict, and, and it's going to be a godly thing. You know, we do a lot of premarital counseling, and my wife and I try and encourage couples that, you know, fighting isn't necessarily bad. Fighting can, can sharpen your marriage, and it can strengthen your marriage. It can help you start communicating better, but you got to fight right. You got to fight in the right way for the marriage against the issue, not against each other. And so this passage, it, it shows us, you almost get a hint from the context of this whole book that one of the main reasons why there were people that were leaving the body of Christ or leaving the local church was because of the Gentile and Jewish conflict, that age old conflict we see throughout the Bible. Maybe the Jewish believers were having a difficult time worshiping the Lord among the Gentile believers. They should think about how different they were. We think we're different than groups today. Jewish believers and Gentile believers had a real struggle. A lot of the New Testament is de dedicated to bringing them together and recognizing that God is doing something new 
and God desires this, this unity in his body. And so I like how Gill says it. He says, it's the duty of saints to assemble together for public worship on account of God who appointed it, approves of it, and whose glory is concerned of it, on account of the saints themselves that they may be delighted, refreshed, and instructed, and edified, and perfected, and on account of others that they may be convinced and converted and brought to the knowledge of faith in Christ. And assembling together ought not to be forsaken, for it is forsaking God and their own mercies, you know, we, we think we can compartmentalize. Well, I'm going to love God, but just hate this person. I'm going to love God, but I just can't. I don't hate them, but I can never be around them or talk to them ever again. We're like, well, that's kind of hating. <laughs> you know, we think we can compartmentalize those things. But God says, no, you love me by loving those other people. You love me by loving the least of these, my brethren. And so this is a problem even today, just like the author says, as is the manner of some. Okay, don't ditch each other, as is the manner of some. That's still a problem today. It's more of a problem today. Ba- you know, back when it was the church in Ephesus, there weren't many options if you were to leave that church. And today, there's a big struggle with believers church hopping. Whenever there's an issue, they church hop, and they never get true accountability. But even worse, they never get to be sharpened in the way that God wanted them to be sharpened through conflict and through resolving sin in a godly way. And so even at a great church like Reliance, you're going to be tempted to keep a distance, to not join a life group, to leave when there's trouble. Every church is going to have an issue. Every single church. I've been a part of some great churches. Every church has an issue because every church has people in it. It's like, you know, and you know, it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't solve the problem to stay at home and just podcast your favorite. Church. You'll get offended at the person you can't even talk to and you're podcasting their sermon, you know? It's, it doesn't help to then stream the, stream the service and stay at home because that's just easier. It is easier, but you will not grow into the person God has called you to grow to be without the body of Christ. So much better, instead of leaving, to stay and improve the situation, to stay and prayerfully be a part of sanctification and transformation, to fill in those gaps if you think someone's got an issue, well, then you're going to serve in the way that you were hoping they would serve. We must choose to stay and not leave. It's easy to go five minutes down the road and and find dozens of different churches. It doesn't help anyone. That pastor should be terrified when somebody leaves a church and comes to them because of an issue. Um, You know, that's a scary thing sometimes. You don't just want more numbers. You want people that are committed, not just hopping around whenever there's an issue. And so community is committed. We've got to be committed. But community is also challenging This verse goes on in verse 25 to say, but exhorting one another. And challenging, it's difficult, but challenging in the sense that we must be challenging one another. We shouldn't tell people, don't speak into my life, but no, challenge me, encourage me. That's one of the best ways to confront other people is to say, can I just, can I just tell you, I really think you stumbled that person. I really think you offended that person. And can I just challenge you to seek the Lord on that, but I want you to know that you can speak into my life. Who am I to say I'm going to speak into your life, but not invited? And so if you want to get to know me more and point out any blind spots I have, praise the Lord. We all need that. It's a much better way to go about it. So yes, some believers are annoying and sinful. That's just the truth, right? Well, bear their burdens and encourage godly change. Rather than be like, oh, they're so annoying, I'm going to slip over to this part of the church and hang here. No, bear their burdens and encourage them Get to know them. Paul tells the Galatians, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness, speaking the truth in love, walking alongside them and helping them. We need it. We hate it, but we need it. 
right? I hate when my wife calls me out on sin, but I know it's right. And in my best moments, I say, thank you. And sometimes even when I know it's right, I put up a little you know, defense mechanism. And then later in the day, I'm like, thank you for calling me out on that. I hate it. It's a pride kind of you know, humbling moment. But we need people that are speaking into our lives. And so they're only going to be able to do that if they know us. And we all know we can put a mask on on Sunday mornings. And so we need to be even more involved. Don't be the last to come and the first to leave on a Sunday morning. I've had seasons where that's a bad habit. I'm like, oh, my kids are in children's ministry. So as soon as worship starts, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out and miss closing worship and communion. And I'm just going to get those kids because what if they need me? They don't need me. They're fine, <laughs> right? I need community and they probably need what they're going to get the last few minutes instead of being the first one picked up from church. We come up with all these reasons, but we need to be a part of exhorting one another. So how do we exhort one another? Well, we can do it through challenging each other to have godly change in our life, but sharing testimonies, discussing the scriptures, memorizing scripture together, reminding one another that the, the coming of the Lord is sooner than we think, right? There's so many ways that we can exhort one another. We can encourage each other to exhort is to really challenge emotionally, to persuade someone to change, you know, that it's worth it to follow Jesus, to honor him with all he's done for us. Obeying this command now just prepares us for the future, right? Sometimes we have the ideas of how we want to serve the Lord a year or five years from now, but when we get to obey this command of exhorting one another now, this is what servants of the Lord do. This is what pastors and missionaries and spouses and parents do is they encourage godly change. We disciple, that's, that's the core of disciple making is to encourage change. We, sometimes we think we need like five Bible studies a week. We're like, oh, I'm, I'm really doing well right now because every time there's a Bible study offered, I attend it. We, we might be better off just focusing our energy on applying what we've learned on Sundays, you know, and really living it out and challenging others to live it out. If each week we were being doers of the word and not hearers only, we wouldn't be deceiving ourselves. We need to live out the scriptures. This is the core of disciple making. And finally, community is urgent, community is urgent. It says so much the more as you see the day approaching, especially now because Jesus is coming back soon. There's a lot of work to be done together, not alone. Just think of these two phrases that, that, that immortals are going to hear one day. These two phrases. One is, well done, good and faithful servant. As we encourage each other and exhort one another towards godly change, we're helping others be prepared to hear that phrase one day. Well done, good and faithful servant. But there's another phrase that some people are gonna hear. I never knew you. And that, that phrase is directed at those that seemingly thought they had a relationship with Jesus. It doesn't say, I never knew you. And you're like, what gives? I was on an island. I never knew the name of Jesus. It's not my fault. No, it's Lord, but I did all these things for you. I cast out demons for you. I did ministry for you. And he's like, yeah, but I never knew you. Those are two terrifying phrases that we're going to hear. And some of those things can be sorted out in sincere community. That's where those blind spots can be removed. Is there, is there no greater blind spot in life than thinking you're serving the Lord, but you really don't have a personal relationship with him? That's the kind of thing that other people can sometimes see. It's, it's difficult, right? There's a lot of parables that tell us it's difficult to know who really is a believer. But as we are opening ourselves up to others and they're seeing, well, you know what? With your wife and kids, you're really a monster, but you're a sweetheart at church. What, what's going on? Let's walk through this together. Blind spots are removed, right? And so Jesus is coming back soon. There's a lot of work to be done. Elsewhere in this same book, it says in Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another daily 
today that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And that's what happens. Sin is so deceitful and it lies to us and that our heart becomes hardened and we become unchangeable. And so we need to exhort one another to change the earlier, the better. It gets harder and harder. And so this day approaching, what are they talking about? The day approaching. Well, these people, especially in the book of Hebrews, they were living before the day that Jerusalem would be destroyed. And Jesus, Jesus predicted this and prophesied that this would happen. Not one stone will be left upon another. And so how much more as the armies are starting to gather, as the rumors of military power, it's, in, it's increasing, as Rome is becoming more and more upset with Israel, how much more of a reason do people need to get right with the Lord, you know, than, than seeing the armies approaching, than knowing their death is probable and, and likely, There's this day coming for the people of Jerusalem, but then there's this day coming of Christ coming back for us. And that was true for them, and it's true for us, and it's a lie that that scoffers and the enemy tries to tell us to not think about the the coming of the Lord, to not think about that. That is something that we need to have in our minds and recognize that it really could be at any moment of God's choosing probably not a likely moment if it's going to come as a thief in the night that he's going to come back. So we see Jesus modeling all of this, right? Jesus's life, you know, we see that community is commanded and and Jesus submitted himself to the Father and and sought the Father and put himself in community with these 12 disciples and, and even with others. Jesus was considerate in community as he just thought of us on the way to the cross as he weeped over Jerusalem and and loved his community there. He was effective in transforming the disciples that in the book of Acts, you know, the the Pharisees wondered, who are they? Oh yeah, they've been with Jesus. That's why they speak so boldly and they've been so changed. It was effective ministry he did. Community is committed. Jesus didn't even abandon Judas. (laughs) Right up until the last minute, he called Judas friend. I mean, think about it. We, we can abandon people so easily that the disciples were like, you want us to call down fire on that village? And yet Jesus, somebody was, was going to betray him and he knew it and he gave him every last opportunity to change. We can stick with people a lot longer than we do. Community is challenging and Jesus would exhort and challenge his disciples. You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you, and he would challenge them to live differently for the kingdom of God and community is urgent and Jesus knew that there was this prophesied timing of his departure. And so he used every waking moment to pour into that community. And then those 12, Jesus's goal wasn't for him to change the world. His goal was to change those 12 so that they could go and change the world. And that goal is still the same. He wants to change us so we can be the world changers. And it's him. It's only by his grace that any of that happens. But did he model that? Of course. And so today, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that when we look at idolatry in our lives, there's, there's an emptiness. There's an emptiness there. I don't think there could have been anything more hyped than the Mayweather-McGregor fight last night, right? I was like, I was like amped up. My wife's like, you're not even into boxing. I'm like, I know, but I have to be. This is like the most hyped thing I've ever seen in my life. They, they hate each other. They're screaming at each other. You know, and you go and watch it. First of all, the server crashed and we all ran from one house to another house because the server went down. It was hilarious. Uh, running towards our idol right now. And so we, uh, then we, we got there and watched the fight. It was a good fight. It was better than other fights that had been hyped in the past. But then this morning you wake up and she's like, oh, were you, were you glad you were there? And I was like, yeah, yeah, it was good. But then I think like, I, like, I think I like hanging with my family even more. You know, it's like we, 
we, we get so focused on things, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, the world only provides emptiness, and serving God is where satisfaction is. So let's stir each other up. That's today. But then there's that day coming. On that day, I know that there's gonna be moments of regret for me, that I'm just gonna regret how distracted I was away from God, watching that stupid sci-fi series. I'm like, ah, oh, I just, if I could have had that extra hour a week serving the Lord, And so today we feel empty. In the future, we're gonna feel this regret. We need to stir each other up. I need to be stirred by you. You need to be spurred on by me. We need to consider one another. Time is, is shorter than we think. This day is approaching. Paul told the Romans, the night is nearly over. The day has drawn near. So let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. We need to consider each other. How much better off would this church be if we were just thinking about each other and going out of our way, ministering one to another. But maybe you've never even considered Jesus as your savior. Think about how much he has thought of you. And please consider Jesus as your savior, that he is God, that he died on the cross for your sins, the punishment that you deserved, that he was risen again, showing the father's acceptance of that offering, and that he wants to give us new life. He wants us to be born again, to have a completely different identity than the identity this world wants to give us. If that's something you've never considered, then I pray you'd continue to consider it, that you would choose today. If you need, need to know more about that, then, then every person here would love and consider it an honor to talk to you about that. Whether they're a pastor or somebody sitting in a chair right here, every person wants to talk to you about Jesus here because he is changing our life. But as you can tell, we're still a mess, but we know that, that God has made us new and he's going to, he has redeemed us, and we're walking towards him together as a community here. And so we're going to sin against each other, but we're going to forgive each other. You know, we're going we're gonna to forget about each other, but we're going to need to be stirred up to walk towards him together. We need to consider him uh, as a family.